So we're continuing in chapter four, the elements of abstinence. Yesterday, what we discussed is two of the three elements of abstinence, the abstinence from pleasures in this world, abstinence in halachic matters. Today, what we're going to discuss is the abstinence in social conduct on page 100. Abstinence in social conduct consists of solitude and separation from society to free one's heart for the service of the eternal and for proper contemplation regarding it. Now, if you think back, uh, you know, famously in America, I think uh, Thoreau was, was famous for advocating this type of a lifestyle that you know, to go into the to solitude with nature and to, and to really have a, an ability to meditate and to think about what the purpose of being in this world is. But far before Thoreau in, in Jewish uh, halakhic tradition, we have um, the founder of Breslov Hasidus. Right? Breslov Hasidus was founded by Rebbe Nachman from Uman in Ukraine. Uh, today, I think when we think of it, we think of uh, people who we see in, in uh, Geula in Israel, in Jerusalem, where they're riding on top of like a, of a big van with like lots of music and they're dancing. But that is not necessarily the main focus of Rest of Hasidus. Rest of Hasidus does believe in getting closer to Hashem through joy, but it also believes in what it calls times of hitzbodidut, right? which means to literally be isolated, be isolated with your thoughts. And through isolation from the rest of the world, be far from the madding crowd, and recognize what's truly important in this world. But this is conditional on his not leaning here as well towards the other extreme. It's very important to ensure, and that he's constantly going to reinforce this point. And when we talk about abstinence, it has to be understood that if you get too far in your abstinence, you're getting to an unhealthy place, as we've discussed multiple times. For our sages of blessed memory have already stated, a person's demeanor should always be oriented towards people. Right? So you have, you have to sort of balance yourself between these two things. So being someone who is a part of society and someone who enjoys other people's presences, we're not looking for a misanthropic relationship with the world. That's not the goal over here. But the point is you have to recognize that there are times in which you have to take yourself away from what society is doing and take yourself away from social commerce and interaction so you can give your heart and your mind a moment to think about are you truly doing what you want to be doing? And they said in the Talmud, a sword upon those who fabricate, they will be stupefied. Quoting a verse from Jeremiah, the, the Talmud explains, what is this verse referring to? It's referring to a sword upon the enemies of Torah scholars. Now, the, the Talmud actually uses a phrase, and it says an enemy of a Torah scholar, or it says an enemy of the Jewish people, when it's referring to something bad happening to an enemy of the scholar or an enemy of the Jewish people. We understand that this is a euphemism, and it's really referring to the Jewish people. But we don't want to say bad things will happen to the Jewish people. So instead we say bad things will happen to the enemy of the Jew. And we understand that that's really a euphemism for ourselves. Now, what's the euphemism? What, what's the bad thing that's going to happen to these Torah scholars? What are they doing wrong? Talmud says, they sit in isolation while learning Torah. A Torah scholar spending his life learning Torah. Maybe you would say better for him to live in an ivory tower. And he'll be able to focus without any distractions at all. The Talmud says, absolutely not. You have to recognize there is a place for isolation. There's a place for determined focus, solitude. But there's also a place for becoming a productive and contributing member of society. And you have to find that happy medium. Rather, one should join the company of good people for as long as may be necessary for his Torah study or for earning a livelihood. 
and afterwards he should seclude himself in order to cleave to his God and to attain the ways of righteousness and the true service of the eternal. Right? And I would pass it aside from that, there's another imperative, and that imperative is that at a certain point, it's important to teach. That the Gemara talks about, we discussed in the past, is it more important to do a mitzvah or is it more important to learn Torah? And we came out that the important, the, the greatest possible uh, pathway would be to spend your time learning Torah, but on the condition that that will help with you obtaining a higher level in mitzvah observance on a practical level. Now, that being said, Gemara has another conversation. Is it better to learn Torah for yourself or is it better to learn Torah to teach Torah? Right? So if someone's learning Torah and is being very selfish about that and is just solely focused on how much Torah he wants to learn and just developing his relationship with God without recognizing we're put on this world not for ourselves. We're put on this world to help others. Right? And part of helping others is going to be if someone is a Torah scholar, then he has an obligation to share that wisdom, right? To share that connection that he has developed through the Torah learning with other people as well. So to say, well, I'm going to seclude myself because then my learning is going to be better, that's not the proper attitude. Okay, so back to the other side now. So how are you supposed to limit yourself? This includes limiting one's speech, refraining from idle conversation, not gazing beyond one's four cubits. It doesn't mean not to gaze beyond one's four cubits. There are two fundamental issues with looking in areas that don't belong to you. And one issue is in terms of leading, uh, leading oneself to cause, uh, to have sort of a lustful desire for people, right? That's one reason why you should try to always stay focused and keep your blinders on, so to speak. And then the other area is in terms of ensuring that you're not jealous of other people, right? So you, if you always look and focus on what you need in your life, right? I don't mean to say in terms of what you need in your life. That's not the right way to say it. But instead of focusing on what other people have, focus on just what you have right now and focus on how you can help others, but not to look towards other people with a curious eye as to what's going on in their life. The curious eye as your neighbor's having a barbecue tonight. But that kind of thought process is not a healthy thought process. And all other such things which relate to matters that become habitual to a person until they become second nature. So in terms of restricting certain actions and certain thought processes until they become second nature. Although I have set out the rules of the three aforementioned elements in concise terms, you can see how they encompass many human actions. And I've already indicated to you that specifics must be dealt with by one's judgment. So he's not trying to give us an exhaustive list because the list that I'm going to have is not giving the same list that Sid is going to have. And the list that Sid is going to have is not giving the same list that Chuck is going to have. Everybody has to recognize their own specific areas that they need to improve. So as to keep them in line with the appropriate and truthful standard of abstinence. I'm going to share with you guys uh, um, an article that I just read, a fascinating article in the, the National Review. And the article talked about that America, which was the first meritocracy in the world, right? And which in theory, at least, it's possible to obtain any heights at all just by dint of what you're able to accomplish and just by your own skills and utilizing those skills as opposed to the world that had been until then, in which the most of the governments around the world, their focus was certainly on you're born into a certain station, a certain social station, a certain caste, and it's hard to really overcome that. So the, it, it, Tocqueville, when he came to America uh, over 200 years ago, what he, what he noted is that it's interesting because although it's a meritocracy and in theory, everybody should have equal access to happiness. And indeed, that's sort of baked into 
into the Declaration of Independence. That being said, because it was a meritocracy, if I see that someone else seems to have more success in life than me, that bothers me. Because then I think to myself, why did I not accomplish that same level of success in life? Why did I not get married to that woman? Why did I not become a doctor? And that bothers me that I didn't obtain that same level when all avenues were open to me. Whereas in the, in the reigning uh, democracy, not democracies, but in the reigning political science and political systems of the day, you were born to the class that you're in and there was no hope of advancement. So I would never feel bad if there was a king who achieved a higher level than I achieved. So this guy finishes this article and his finishing point is, it's important to recognize that America today has sort of uh, devolved and the, the criteria of success are not necessarily something that we'll be proud of when the world looks back 200 years from now. This was the, the apex of American society was to be a billionaire or was to be uh, a uh, TikTok influencer. This is not necessarily something that we're gonna be proud of, right? And, and for those who are thinking people, not necessarily something that we're looking to achieve right now either. This point, and this fellow writes at the end, the important thing to recognize is that religion gives you a different set of values. And instead of getting focused on what the other person has accomplished in a specific sphere of influence, be focused on how you can make yourself the best person given the tools that you have. And it's really rang true because this is literally what we say about the Torah tells us you're not allowed to be jealous of others, right? Now, Torah, the, the, uh, all the commentators say, how can the Torah mandate a lack of jealousy? What does that even mean? Jealousy is a feeling. It's a feeling in my heart. How can the Torah tell me I shouldn't have a feeling in my heart? So the, the Ibn Ezra explains with a mashal, with a parable. He says what you have to really bring home on a rational level is to recognize the same way that you have a villager who has a princess drives by a village on her carriage. And you have a villager who sees that princess. He may think that she's a beautiful woman. But he doesn't even think to himself, perhaps I want to marry that woman. It doesn't even cross his mind because it's not on his horizon. He recognizes that's not what's supposed to be happening in his world at that time. So he doesn't feel any sense of a lack of a deficiency that he cannot achieve this result. So the Ibn Ezra says, what we have to recognize in life is every single person has their own set circumstances that they are born to, whether via nurture or whether via nature. God put us into specific positions with specific uh, attributes, specific faults. And we all have our own specific role that we're supposed to accomplish. So looking into other people's beyond our own four cubits, our own little um, life in terms of figuring out what we can accomplish and how we can help others. Instead, looking at what other people are doing and thinking to ourselves, why don't we have that? That is a very unhealthy way of looking at life. But if we recognize what our core value system should be, and in terms of improving ourselves, given where we started from to where we want to end up being, based on a value system, uh, not of celebrity, based on a value, not of wealth, but rather based on a value system of Torah observance or figuring out how to help other people, then we can truly be happy, as he says in the chapters of our fathers, Ezehu Ashir, who is the wealthy person, the one who is happy with his lot. That is how to achieve true happiness. It's fascinating to me that the that the fellow writing for the uh, National Review, who's uh, a college student actually, a William F. Buckley fellow, would actually have the same uh, pr pretty, pretty deep understanding of, of, uh, of human happiness and, and human nature that would lead one to be happy the same way the Torah tells us what's important about life. Take care, everyone. Be well.